Hi, everyone. Welcome to the Koinonia Church Message Library. Our hope is that today's message encourages you, challenges you, and brings you closer to Jesus. We are confident that God's Word is living and active and is relevant for us today. Thanks for joining us. Enjoy the message. Well, good morning, everyone. It's good to see you. You made it through the snow. Well done. Welcome online as well. Looking forward to sharing the word with you this morning. Um, For those of you who know me well, you may notice my voice sounds a little off. And I am actually feeling better than I sound, so that's that's good. Um, And this morning has been an interesting morning for me because I I was planning up until a few minutes ago on sharing one message, and this is going to be a different one. So um, the graphics department, you can forget about the graphics you set up. My apologies for that. (laughs) Um, We have been looking at who God is. We've been looking at the fact that God is truth. God is creator. God is love. God is holy. God is just. And all of these attributes together, if you think about them, lead to a logical conclusion. And that is that only God is qualified to be king. Amen? Now, the Bible tells us that God is king, and there's an objection that many people have to that kind of a statement. And maybe even we as Christians have this question in our mind, and that is, if God is king, why is the world so messed up? If God is king, why is there so much brokenness, sickness, injustice, death, all of these things? If God is king, why, why is the world the way it is? And that's a reasonable question to ask, and we are going to address that this morning. Something we have to realize is that the world was not always the way it is right now. When God created this planet and created humans, this place looked very different. It was free from all of these things that we don't want on our planet. The suffering, the injustice, the death, the sickness, the disease, the abuse, all of that stuff, it didn't exist. But there's a problem with us human beings. And that problem is that we resist the idea of somebody having authority in our lives. We resist the idea that somebody else gets to decide or direct our lives. That somebody else would get to define what is good and what is evil, what is right and what is wrong. And that's what we see happening all the way back in the beginning in the Garden of Eden. God is pictured as a king who has just created an earthly kingdom and he creates man and woman, Adam and Eve, in his image. He breathes the breath of life into them and he calls them to be his representatives, his ambassadors on the earth. He calls them to carry authority, to govern, to rule. But there's another character in this story. And his name 
is Satan or the devil. And Satan simply means that it's not, Satan is not a, a red guy with a pointy goatee and a pitchfork and horns. That is not who Satan is. Satan just means adversary, opponent. And God's adversary had already, prior to creation, he had resisted and rebelled against God as king in his life. And as a result, he'd been cast out of heaven. So because, God, because Satan, God's adversary, could not corrupt God's kingdom and take over God's kingdom in heaven, he decided he was going to give it a go on earth. And that's where he comes and he tempts Adam and Eve, the representatives of the king, the ambassadors of the king of heaven. And he tempts them to do exactly what he has already done, to rebel against God's authority, and to decide for themselves how they will govern their lives. To decide for themselves what is right, what is wrong, what is good, what is evil. To live a self-governed life. And that is when everything changed. That is when the sickness, the disease, the death, the injustice... All of these things that we hate, that we don't want in our human experience, that is when they entered into the world. That's what the Bible tells us. But there's good news because right after Adam and Eve, God's representatives, the representatives of his rule and reign on earth, have rebelled against the king of heaven, God makes a promise to his creation. And he says that he is going to raise up somebody who is going to be born of woman to crush the head of the serpent, Satan, God's adversary, and he is going to make things right again. Does that sound like good news? And that is what begins to unfold throughout the Old Testament. God chooses a man named Abraham because he's got to bring a human into the world, so he has to start with a family, so he starts with Abraham. He promises him a son. And from his offspring comes another man called David, who becomes king of the family of Abraham, also known as Israel or the Jews. And throughout the Old Testament, we see prophecies that this seed of the woman, this person who's going to come and rescue the world, who's going to make all things right again, is going to be born from the line of Abraham, and more specifically, he's going to be a son of King David. This leads us to Matthew chapter 1, verse 1. About 700 years after the prophet Isaiah prophesies about this coming king, Matthew 1.1 says this. This is the genealogy of Jesus, the Messiah, the son of David, the son of Abraham. Remember who this person was going to be that God was going to raise up? He was going to be the son of Abraham and the son of David. And throughout the Old Testament, the Jews understood this person to be the Messiah, which just means anointed, it means the one who has been anointed by God to be a king who's going to rule over the nations of the world who's going to make all things right. And Matthew 1.1, 1, 1, 
the, the author here of Matthew's gospel, clearly wants us to understand that this is Jesus. This is the genealogy of Jesus, the Messiah, or the Christ, means the same thing, the son of David, the son of Abraham. Then in chapter 2, who knows what happens in chapter 2 of Matthew? The wise men come. And who are they looking for? The king of the Jews. So they come to Herod, makes sense. And they say, Herod, where is the king of the Jews? They figure he's a king. He probably knows where the king of the Jews is. And Herod feels threatened by this. And so he tries to kill Jesus before he can become a king. Doesn't succeed. And then in Matthew chapter 3, at the very beginning of the verse, we get introduced to another character called John the Baptist. And what is John the Baptist doing? He is a herald or a messenger of a coming king. He says, repent for the kingdom of heaven has come near. And it's speaking of John the Baptist, it says, This is he who was spoken of through the prophet Isaiah, saying, A voice of one calling in the wilderness, prepare the way for the Lord, make straight his paths for him. This is what John the Baptist is doing. He is preparing the way for Jesus, the Messiah, the King, who is the seed of the woman, who is going to crush the head of the serpent, who's going to make all things new again, make all things right. Then Jesus in Matthew chapter 4, is on the scene. He gets baptized. The Spirit of God comes upon him. You remember what the word Messiah and Christ means? Anointed. The Spirit of God comes upon him and anoints him to be the Messiah. And he goes from that baptism into the wilderness to be tempted by God's adversary. Does this sound familiar? Because <laughs> that's what happened back in the garden, right? The adversary came and tempted Adam and Eve to rebel against God. What does Jesus do? He's born to be the Messiah. He goes into the wilderness, not into a garden, not into a paradise, but into a wilderness. And he is tempted by God's adversary. And the Bible only records three of those temptations. But listen to the third one, because it's very interesting. See, Satan, God's adversary, knows that something is up with this Jesus of Nazareth guy. He's beginning to clue in that something is going on, and he begins to realize that Jesus has come for a very specific purpose, one of which includes to take back the kingdoms of this world. Because Adam and Eve had, as God's representatives, surrendered authority over to God's adversary. Listen to the temptation. Again, the devil took Jesus to a high mountain and showed him all the kingdoms of the world and their splendor. And listen to what he says. All this I will give you, he said, if you will bow down and worship me. Jesus said to him, Away from me, Satan, for it is written, Worship the Lord your God and serve him only. Then the devil left him, and the angels came and attended to him. The enemy, God's adversary, was tempting Jesus, who the Bible incidentally also refers to as the last Adam, to do what Adam had done in the garden, 
to reject God's ways of doing things, his will, and do things his own way. But Jesus resisted. And as he came out of the wilderness, he began to do something. He began to continue the message that John the Baptist had been preaching. From that time on, Jesus began to preach, repent for the kingdom of heaven is near. Repent for the kingdom of heaven is near. Jesus was calling people to turn from the rebellion that Adam and Eve had introduced into this planet and turn back to the king of heaven. To embrace his rulership, to embrace his kingdom. He calls his first disciples right after that. And then he begins to proclaim the good news of the kingdom of God. This is all in Matthew chapter 4. You can check it out. Then he demonstrates the power of the kingdom. So he calls his first 12 into the kingdom to be part of his kingdom family. Then he proclaims the good news of the kingdom. And then he demonstrates the power of the kingdom by healing sickness and disease, casting out demons. And then he teaches the ways of the kingdom in Matthew 5 through 7. And he does this for three straight years. Jesus was the promised king. He was the king that all of the Old Testament had promised and prophesied. All of the prophets and different narratives throughout the Old Testament, we see this prophesied and promised king. Jesus is the promised king. But Jesus wasn't just the promised king. He was about to become the crucified king. Just when the crowds are becoming convinced that this Jesus of Nazareth might just be the Messiah who was prophesied about, this, this man who was a descendant of Abraham and a, and a descendant of King David, just when they were beginning to think that this could be the guy, Remember, Jesus enters into Jerusalem on a donkey, and they're, they're crying out, Hosanna to the son of David, right? Because they think this could be the guy. This could be the Messiah, and they're getting excited about it. But what they don't know is that Jesus Christ did not come to be the kind of king that they were thinking He did not come to overthrow their oppressors, their physical human oppressors. He came to do something much greater. He came to overthrow the adversary, Satan, and everything he had accomplished through man's rebellion. That's what Jesus came to do. And he was coming to do it in a very unexpected way. Rather than coming and crushing him and crushing oppression like a military leader, he comes as a humble servant a servant king, and he allows himself to be portrayed. He allows himself to be handed over to the human authorities. He allows himself to be falsely accused and abused and tortured, and he ultimately allows himself to be crucified on a cross. What is going on? Now we the, the promised king has become the crucified king. What is going on? How does this make sense? <laughs> the Bible says that 
in, a, in 1 Corinthians 2, 7 and 8, we declare God's wisdom. This is Paul speaking after Jesus has uh, laid down his life. We declare God's wisdom, a mystery that has been hidden and that God destined for our glory before time began. None of the rulers of this age understood it. For if they had, they would not have crucified the Lord of glory. See, Satan, God's adversary, was stirring up the human leaders and rulers of that day to try and put an end to Jesus, the promised king, because he had figured out this was the Messiah. So he stirred them up. He stirred them up with jealousy. He stirred them up with envy, and he inspired them to kill the promised king. And Jesus became the crucified king. But the thing they did not realize is this, that God was going to use their plan and turn it against them. <laughs> All of their plans, their plotting, their conniving, their contriving, their brilliance and human wisdom that led to Jesus being crucified, God was going to turn all of that and make it fit his eternal purpose and plan, which was to exalt his son as king of kings and lord of lords. See, because humans had legally surrendered the, the, uh, the earth and the world, this kingdom of God on earth, into the hands of God's adversary, a human had to come and make things right. God couldn't just jump in and change everything because God had given mankind, womankind, the authority to govern the world. And what did they do with that authority? They rebelled and they handed the world over to God's adversary. So what did God do? He placed his son in the world who never sinned, and he raised him up to bear in himself the consequences of our rebellion. Jesus was not a victim dying on a cross. He was a savior dying in our place. Jesus bore our sin in his own body so that we could be made right with God. He took the penalty of our sin, which is death, our rebellion, the Bible says, has a sentence of death upon it. And so God, instead of pouring out that sentence on us, he poured it out upon his son. And Jesus, the promised king, became the crucified king. Instead of rebelling against God like Adam had done in the garden, he fully surrendered himself to the will of God instead even to the point of death on a cross. And Jesus, the promised king, who became the crucified king, became the resurrected king. Listen to Philippians 2, verses 6 through 11. Jesus, being in very nature God, did not consider equality with God something to be used to his own advantage, Rather, he made himself nothing by taking the very nature of a servant, being made in human likeness and being found in appearance as a man. He humbled himself 
by becoming obedient to death, even death on a cross. Why was he doing this? See, Adam and Eve, they attempted to use their ability to choose to become like God, even though they were already like God. That's a whole other message. (laughs) They had tried to exalt themselves to become like God. What does Jesus, who already is God, do? He uses his ability and his sinlessness and who he is as the Son of God to lay down his life for us. The exact opposite of what was happening in the garden. In other words, Jesus, who was equal to God, used his authority and power for our benefit. How did God respond to this? Therefore, God exalted Jesus to the highest place and gave him the name that is above every name, that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, And every tongue acknowledge that Jesus Christ is Lord or King to the glory of God the Father. It was through the crucifixion and the resurrection that Jesus was crowned King. The rulers of this age didn't understand it, but that's what God was doing. And God has given Jesus the authority and the power to rescue and redeem every human being that will receive him as king. Did you notice what it says here? That the day is coming when every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. The day is coming when every knee will. Every knee. Even the people that don't believe it right now will have to acknowledge who Jesus truly is. But what God is doing is he is graciously extending an invitation to you and I to acknowledge who Jesus is right now, to receive him as our king. And when we receive him as our king, the head of the serpent is crushed in our lives. And he rescues and redeems us from the consequences of our rebellion and sin. Isn't God good? This is who God is. In the garden, Satan, the serpent, the adversary of God, accused God to Adam and Eve of being untrustworthy, of being selfish in his motives, of withholding what was best from them. And when we see what Jesus has done, we see that God in Jesus was undoing and exposing that lie. Because Jesus did not use his authority and power for his benefit. He was not selfishly coming. He was coming to rescue and redeem as an act of love. He was coming, Colossians 1.13 and 14 says, to rescue us from the dominion of darkness the dominion of God's adversary, and bring us into the kingdom of the Son he loves, in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. Can you say thank you, Jesus? 1 John 3.8, the whole reason the Son of God was manifest was to destroy the works of the devil. That's why he came, and that's what he accomplished. This isn't the end of the story, though. It's not the end of God's plan as king to redeem us. 
because Jesus isn't only the promised king, he's not only the crucified king, he's not only the resurrected king, but Jesus Christ is the soon coming king. After his resurrection, after, um, when Jesus ascended to his father, before he ascended, he told his disciples that he would return to establish his kingdom. See, Jesus is king, but his kingdom is not fully manifested yet. That's what you have to understand, what we have to understand. Jesus is king of kings and lord of lords, but his kingdom, the effects of his kingdom, have not been fully established in the earth yet. And we'll get to why that is. This is what John writes in Revelation 1, verses 4 to 8, about Jesus, the soon coming king. From Jesus Christ, who is the faithful witness, the firstborn from the dead, and the ruler of the kings of the earth, to him who loves us and freed us from our sins by his blood, and has made us a kingdom and priest to serve his God and Father, to him be glory and power forever and ever, amen. Look, he is coming with the clouds, and every eye will see him, even those who have pierced him. Jesus is the soon coming king. And when he comes, this world is going to look very different. It's going to look a whole lot more like what God intended in the very beginning. Because this king, the promised king, the crucified king, the resurrected king, the king who is soon coming is also the king who will make everything new. Jesus is going to make everything new. In Revelation 21, this is what John says, what he writes. He says, I saw a new heaven and a new earth. For the first heaven and the first earth had passed away with all of its sickness, with all of its disease, with all of its injustice, with all of its death, with all of that, it had passed away, and there was no longer any sea. I saw the holy city, the new Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride, beautifully dressed for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Look, God's dwelling place is now among the people, and he will dwell with them, just like he dwelt with Adam and Eve back in the beginning. They will be his people, and God himself will be with them and be their God. Now listen to this. He will wipe every tear from their eyes. There will be no more death or mourning or crying or pain for the old order of things. This broken world that's been corrupted by the rebellion and sin of humanity has passed away. He who was seated on the throne said, I love this statement, I am making everything new. This is a picture of the new Eden, the restored garden that God had in mind from the beginning. Coming back to our objection that many people have that I shared at the beginning, if God is king, why is this world such a mess? If God is king, why is there so much pain and suffering and sickness and disease and injustice? 
It's because of this. It's because God who is king is also the God who is love. And God in his love gave humanity the ability to choose. God did not force his authority on Adam and Eve. He doesn't force his authority on us. He says, this is the reality. I'm, I'm creator, I'm king, I'm love, I'm holy, I'm just, I'm all of these things. You decide. You decide. And humanity decided wrongly. Adam and Eve rebelled. And in the process, what God had said would happen, in the day you eat from this tree, you will surely die. Death entered into the world. And we experienced the brokenness that we see all around us. And the thing is, all of us are guilty of rebelling against God. All of us are guilty. And because God is holy and just, like we've been sharing over the previous weeks, he has to do something about this. He has to make things right. And that's why he sent his son, Jesus, to make things right. And so we say, well, if Jesus is king, if God is king, why doesn't he just put an end to all of this this now? Here's, Here's the reality. Where does the suffering and the sin and death and sickness, where does it come from? It's the fruit, the the result of sin. Where does sin come from? It comes from us. (laughs) So if God is going to put an end to suffering and to death and sickness and injustice and abuse and all of these things that we want gone from our planet, he's going to have to judge sin. Because that's the only way to stop it. And if he's going to judge sin, he's going to have to judge sinners. That's a pretty sobering thought, isn't it? And the word of God tells us that one day, when Jesus returns, he will judge sin. And he will judge sinners. In other words, he will judge and bring justice to all those who have rebelled and rejected Jesus as their Savior and Lord. And there will be an end to all of the suffering. But there's a reason why God hasn't done that yet. And 2 Peter gives voice to this in chapter 3. He says, do not forget this one thing, dear friends. See, the people that Peter was writing to were victims. They were experiencing the persecution, the suffering, the abuse, the torture, and all of that stuff. And they were asking the same question. They were saying, Jesus said he was the soon coming king. When is he going to come back? (laughs) When is he going to make all things right? When is he going to free us from all of this stuff that we're experiencing? And Peter says, Do not forget this one thing, dear friends. With the Lord, a day is like a thousand years, and a thousand years are like a day. The Lord is not slow in keeping his promise to return and make all things new, as some understand slowness. Instead, listen to this, he is patient with you, not wanting anyone to perish, but everyone to come to repentance. That is the heart of God. 
God is not wanting anyone to perish, but everyone to come to repentance. But the day of the Lord will come like a thief. This day when the soon coming king will come, he will not come just as savior, but he'll come as judge and he will make all things right. The day of the Lord will come like a thief. The heavens will disappear with a roar. The elements will be destroyed by fire and the earth and everything done in it will be laid bare. Since everything will be destroyed in this way, what kind of people ought you to be? You ought to live holy and godly lives as you look forward to the day of God and speed its coming. The day will bring about the destruction of the heavens by fire. The elements will melt in heat. But in keeping with his promise, we are looking forward to a new heaven and a new earth where righteousness dwells. That is what we have to look forward to. Jesus is the soon coming king. And he waits and delays his coming so that as many people as possible can respond to the message that he brought, the good news of the gospel of the kingdom of God, that there is a king who was promised, who was crucified, who was resurrected, and who's coming back again. There is a king who has defeated the powers of darkness, who is bringing to an end all sin, all suffering, all sickness, all disease, all abuse, all death, all injustice. He's bringing it to an end and he invites us to receive him as king. And when we do that, the head of the serpent is crushed in our lives. And we get to be redeemed children of God. And this is why we exist as a church. We exist as a church to declare the good news of what Jesus has done, to show and to share his love. The lie in the garden was that God is using his authority and his power to try and control humanity. But what Jesus revealed is that God uses his authority and power not to control, but to bless, to give, to love. That's what he did through Jesus. And now we have been made, all of us who have received Jesus, have been made like Adam and Eve were back in the garden, ambassadors for the kingdom of God, representatives of God here in the earth. And we have a message to share with the world around us. And Christmas is such a beautiful time to share that message. Do you want to hear what that message is? 2 Corinthians 5. Here's the message that you and I get to share, the good news. God was reconciling the world to himself in Christ. Neighbor, friend, co-worker, that baby that was born in a manger, through him, God was reconciling the world to himself, not counting people's sins against them. And he has committed to us here, this message of reconciliation. We are therefore Christ's ambassadors as though God were making his appeal through us. This Christmas, as you're sharing the good news, God is making his appeal through you to the people around you. We implore you on Christ's behalf, be reconciled to God. Receive Jesus as your king. Receive him as your savior. 
be reconciled to God. God made him who had no sin to be sin for us so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. That's the message. That's what we get to proclaim. I don't know where you're at today. Maybe you're, you're looking at the world around you and you're getting anxious. And, you, and you're looking at it, the injustice and the craziness of the world. And maybe you're getting anxious and you're thinking like, what is going on in this world around me? And how is this gonna affect my life? And it's bringing fear into your life. God wants you to know that Jesus is the promised King. And He is the King who is making all things new. And one day all of this is gonna look very different. But in the meantime, He is patiently waiting for people to respond to His message of good news. And if, if God can work out his plan of salvation the way I've described, then you can trust him with the difficulties of your life, the things you face. It doesn't mean they're easy. It doesn't mean it's no big deal. But God is big enough. He is strong enough. He is loving enough and wise enough to be king in the middle of all of that. Maybe you're in a position, though, where you haven't received Jesus yet as your king. Maybe you've believed like Adam and Eve did, the lie they bought into that God was restricting you. He was, he was trying to dictate to you. He was trying to control you, that that's what God is all about. I trust you can see from what I've shared, and I've just been sharing scripture with you this morning, that that is not the heart of God. Never has been, never will be. God is a God of love. God is a God of selflessness and sacrifice. And that is what he demonstrated through Jesus Christ. God could have left us to our own devices. He could have left us in our sin, in our brokenness. He could have left us to lie in the bed we had made. But he didn't. He sent his son to crush the head of the serpent, to bring freedom and deliverance and redemption. That is who God is. And this morning, if you're ready, I encourage you to surrender your life to the King of kings and Lord of lords, to acknowledge who he is and say, Jesus, here's my sin. Here's my rebellion. I don't want any more of it. I want you to be my king. I want you to be my savior and my Lord. Please forgive me. And he will in a moment. That's all there is to it. Thank you for joining us on the podcast today. We want to encourage you to let the Holy Spirit sink today's message into your heart, to let it transform you and bring new life. If you want to learn more about Koinonia, you can go to kcf.life to get connected. Thank you for being a part of our community. If today's message encouraged you, we would love for you to rate it and review it and share it with a friend. We love you. Let's continue to build God's kingdom together.